Welcome to the Smart Tech Check Podcast, hosted by Mark Vina, your home for candid, insightful, and provocative conversations about the smart home, home automation, security, smartphones, PC and console gaming, and much more. Hello, everyone. My name is Mark Vina, host of the Smart Tech Check Podcast. Today is Thursday, July 7th, 2022. Joining me for today's podcast is the trio of tech journalism's um, aficionados, Steve uh, Stu Alpin, who scribes for Popular Mechanics, U.S. News, Techlicious, Investopedia, and other publications, John Quain, who writes for the New York Times, Smart Cities, and Tom's Guide, and Rob Pegarero, who writes frequently on tech policy for Wirecutter, PC Magazine, and USA Today. Gentlemen, how are each of you today? Good. Good. Stuart, you I and I were talking about the no, no, I, I, I gotta mix it up, you know. My my copywriter, who's very well paid, has <laughs> <laughs> got to spend more time coming up with uh, better things to say. But anyway, so um, any uh, any uh, how, how was your Fourth of July? Let me let me ask you guys each of that quickly before we head into the podcast. Rob, I have a Fourth of July story that relates to one of the topics that we're going to talk about later. So I'm going to reserve my time. That's the kind of journalism I like, Stuart. You know, you kind of tease us with what's coming. Uh, Rob, what about you? How was July 4th? It was good. It was a good old school kind of July 4th where um, slept in a bit, had a nap, then went over to a friend's house. They uh, set off a lot of fireworks in the backyard. Um, too much food was eaten. And uh, then uh, the, this, this whole going to work the morning after July 4th thing, that's just for the birds, man. <laughs> I'll take that under advisement with Congress to see if they'll uh, pass a law to give you the day off. Like they've always talked about having a day off after the Super Bowl. We'll do the same. We'll, we'll, we'll tack that on as well. You know, if any party's looking for a good campaign issue that Americans can unite around, that's one right there. You know there. what? Strangely enough, you would get Americans to unite around that issue. Uh, John, how was your July 4th? I, I worked. Uh, you know, I finished a set of stuff put on my uh, my the front of my house. So I, I, that was a major accomplishment and, uh, uh, worked on a, a case study in genetic engineering. Whoa, super nerd. So I didn't do any of the fireworks and stuff. <laughs> wow. Well, I, I spent my July 4th, um, remodeling my, um, kitchen and, uh, there you go. You know, well, I'm not a contractor is doing it, but I'm kind of directing him and, uh, the pl- my pl- thank God for virtual screens because my the, ba- the if you saw the back it would look like uh, it would look like a war zone. <laughs> it's so but they they had to rip the, um, the, the, the widen the space to accommodate a normal size refrigerator. It's a big big adventure and that's probably a podcast in itself on a different type of topic. But let's hit, let's go in and let's hit our topics real quickly. Um, I think it was Stuart or Stuart and or it was Rob, I, one of you guys, uh, pointed me to, pointed me to a report. Yeah, no, I think it was Stuart then. So you pointed me to that report that, and this uh, this has gone under my radar, that there was a, there's a report out there that smart homes were subjected to more than 12,000 hacking, hacking or, or scanning attacks on a weekly basis. And I did not know that. You know, that was something that really took me um, by surprise. Uh, I mean, home networks in general are always under attack, but smart homes specifically, that might be the new land of opportunity for the bad guys, obviously, to get in. And we've talked in previous podcasts how um, 
you know, the average home now has 25, 30, you know, IOT devices in their home with different flavors. Some of them have passwords called password. And it's not that you don't have to be a rocket scientist to break into it. But Stuart, let me start with you and get your reaction to that report. And uh, is it evident for you that, hey, maybe the smart home is not the concept is not uh, ready for prime time, at least in your home? Well, I mean, it's always, we've always suspected that, you know, different IoT devices are going to have different levels of vulnerability. This was a actually a test house that was set up by which question mark, which is a very well-known, at least Britain, British tech magazine. And they set up a, a phony smart home, essentially, uh, something separate that they could cordon off from everything else. And they set up all the site device, the smart devices, just as they would in every other house. So a smart printer, a smart camera, smart lock, you know, computer and, and you know, network and all of that. And they started monitoring. They set it up so they could monitor, monitor potential hacking attacks. And they they were averaging more than ten thousand a day. Uh, types of hacking attacks, looking to install malicious software, to break into things. And I think the the story that I found, I don't think that they were, um, th that they expected that level. They probably expected a minimum number. But I think that what made the story surprising even to them was the enormous number of attacks on this, on a normal system. It wasn't, they didn't set up anything extra special other than monitoring so they could monitor for a hacking attack. And just like you, I it just knocked me to the floor. Um, one of the things that may be an outgrowth of this was apparently a lot of these smart devices have default administration and passwords, admin and yes. one, two, three, four is default. And what the EU is now considering apparently as a result of this is forcing these companies to, one, increase the security uh, level of their devices. Oh, and by the way, I should add is that these were attempts that apparently most of the devices were able to turn back the attacks. But of course, as you and I well know, that it's, an, it's a never-ending battle. It just takes one. one. That's exactly right. It only takes one to get in there. So, I mean, it's sort of like a shotgun approach. You know, hackers are go just going to, and the hackers are not only from from Russia and India and the usual, they're also from the U.S. And this was a British-based test. So hackers are all over and border, they know no borders. But one of the things they're thinking of in, in Europe is is setting some, it, we were talking a couple of weeks ago about setting technical standards, of government setting technical standards, that one of the things they're considering is setting a baseline standard for security for smart devices, that they would have to adhere to some certain level of security, which would include not putting in a default password or administration names, because most people don't change those things. Right. John, in the Quain household, has your house been attacked, that smart home been attacked 10,000 times? <laughs> oh, all the time. I mean, um, you know, these things are automated too. So, they, and, and computer security companies set up honeypots too all over and monitor them um, and just watch them attack. And if you go into one of their, you know, central control offices, it's like, you know, uh, 007, you just see screens of attacks going on constantly. It's not a surprise really at all. And most of the nanny cam break ins and things that have happened in the years past, there's several companies that have all been 
completely wide open and it wasn't wink i was trying to recall is it wink that bricked all their devices and i remember i reviewed that product and when i noticed that they didn't have any security on the product and that and i called them and they said oh we don't need no stinking security that's what the people (laughs) at wink said to me and of course uh you know six months later they bricked all their devices remotely um so most of these companies are not very sophisticated um and it doesn't surprise me at all, but yeah. level of attacks because it's all automated. As Stuart said, look, when they do um, recreations of this at NYU has a cyber center and they, and they do this with the city off and on recreate it. There are like three guys sitting in a room, the attackers, and then they have a giant, like huge room, like 30 people trying to defend against the attacks. So that gives you a sense right. of, you know, how lopsided this, that's why they call it asymmetric warfare. So it only takes one or two people to just cause complete and utter havoc. Um, yes. So yeah, it doesn't surprise me, but it is a good warning uh, for people who have garage door openers and all sorts of stuff like that on their house. Hey, Make sure you've changed passwords. Make sure you've set in security that you have available to you. Right. Now, the interesting, and this question for you is, Rob, is, um, you know, people, you know, typically think, you know, threats are going to come into your network, you know, um, not always through a smart home device, although that obviously is now becoming much more in vogue. But, you know, people, uh, you know, try to protect their laptops, their, 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 uh, their smartphones, uh, routers are getting better in terms of having you know security level protection at the router level. Um, even companies like HP, I think HP is one of those companies that's really done a nice job of um, providing uh, firmware in their consumable cartridges that block attacks from coming in through a printing device. Because believe it or not, that that is possible. And you know, kudos to HP for you know, at least recognizing the problem and. And, and putting printers out. respond to external inputs because mine doesn't always do that when I'm just trying to print something on it. <laughs> well, they did a nice job on self-healing Wi-Fi, but that's a different story. But, you know, in, in your household, just to use your experience, have you done anything specifically at the network level? Because as you know, the, the IoT device level is kind of a, it's a, it's a jungle. I mean, especially so if you- My attack you, surface is pretty limited overall. The only smart home device I have right now is a set of Philips Hue light bulbs, where the hub on that thing, it updates itself automatically. There's nothing I need to look at. Um, the, the the Wi-Fi router we have itself is has a firewall that protects everything on the inside of it. So we don't have a whole lot of exposed functionality. The Hue bulbs themselves, they have an out-of-home control option. I have that disabled. Same way I have the option to remote admin the uh, wireless router disabled. Like I work from home. My wife works from home. There, there's not a whole lot of we're not actually going to use an out of home control feature that often why have it exposed and have it as something that, that might get tripped up. Right. Hmm. Well, one of, one of the, one of the things that one of the points that they made in this piece was that they pointed to certain devices that seem to be more vulnerable. Everything is up to date. See, one of them was a, a, a security camera and the other one was a printer. And just from my own personal experience, the one instance where I got hacked was my Wi-Fi printer. That's where that's where the attack came through. So it's not only out of home devices; it's just something a device you wouldn't even think of is something that would be hackable. A printer, it, but that's where the one attack that I had came through. It came through the printer, caused me all manner of problems. And the story also pointed out that the the one of the two main sources of the problems that they had that they had trouble tracking was through a printer. 
So well, it doesn't have to be a high technique. technique. You want to get on the, the targets network somehow, gain a bridgehead mm -hmm. somewhere, and then you can start traversing the network, yeah. right. way escalate privileges. And often it is some little function, some little feature that, you know, is not on the first slide the CIO presents when talking about the security strategy. But same way, you know, you, you don't need to sink a ship by punching a hole in the, the most reinforced part of the keel. You know, just find some way to have the water get in. Right. To Watergate in. I knew you were going to bring Watergate into the into the conversation. I even Watergate in. So was that a slip? Oh, I think said Watergate in. Watergate is that way, about two miles. <laughs> Let that bring up our, our next topic here. And that is, um, you know, Stuart, you and I have talked about this before. We've talked about this many times. But now there seems to be some data out there that, that Netflix right now is really getting hurt from an image standpoint among the top streamer services and uh in fact, declining is probably too weak a word. I think the survey that you we bounced around was showing it, it was last among the top streamer services. So is this all self-inflicted wounds? Is this net, uh, Netflix just, hey, you know what? They're not, they're not the cat's meow that they were a few years ago. Explain this to me. Well, I think this is a, rest, a, a resting on your laurels situation. I think Netflix assumed because they had the feel to themselves for a very, very long time and then all of a sudden, HBO Max has zoomed up. Hulu has got improved. You've got Paramount Plus, And I think there are a huge number of factors involved here. But there is hope for Netflix because this survey still also indicated that amongst a third of, of the respondents said that if they had to choose one streaming service, they would choose Netflix. So there is room here. And I think some of the things for Netflix they need, need to look at is they need to stop resting on the laurels. And, and need to step up. A lot of the their competitors, for instance, have franchise-based um, content. You know, a Paramount Plus has Star Trek, and Disney has the MCU and Star Wars. Um, HBO has just a huge, HBO Max has a huge catalog of, you know, Game of Thrones and Sopranos and The Wire and things like that. And, and when you think about Netflix, Squid Games and maybe a couple other things, but real, no real deep franchise things. The other thing that they might be looking at is live action, live sports sorts of things. Um, yep. So maybe, so I think Netflix has room to improve themselves, uh, but I think this this degradation in their perceived value has dropped primarily because they ha simply haven't kept up with their competitors in terms of in terms of franchise level content. Uh, Rob, do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I was about to make that sports point myself where and Apple in particular is spending serious money. They've got Friday Night Baseball. They're, they're going to carry every MLS club's match everywhere with no regional blackouts starting the next season. Uh, they, they are apparently among the last people in the bidding for NFL Sunday ticket. Uh, Netflix, they've never done live sports, but they've also never done ads. And this would be one way where literally throwing money at the problem uh, would be one way to look at it. And yeah, some of it is also, yeah, what, what is a Netflix show? They don't have a core brand. And, you know, when I look at what people are talking about, it's Star Trek, Stranger Worlds and Paramount Plus, um, you know, whatever Star Wars spinoff we're talking about in Disney Plus right now, Succession on HBO. And uh, yeah, what's on Netflix and, you know, honestly, my biggest problem and one thing that, that is definitely keeping me from thinking too much about the value is, I got to catch up on all these series. Like I haven't even finished uh, inventing Anna 
And, and that's like another 10 hours of my life. I got to set aside to that. And I, I like it so far, you know, right up my alley, journalistically themed. Uh, it's a crowded space. Uh, I, I would definitely say anyone who's thinking of putting out a SVOD subscription video on demand service now, on top of all the others, really should consider how much free time all of us actually have at the moment. This is not April 2020 when we're cooped up at home 22 hours of the day. Well, that might be a function as well. You know, that now Netflix is not just competing with other services or competing now with freedom. You can actually get outside your house. So I think that is a, that, that's a, uh, a good point. But, John, don't you think that some of Netflix issues, maybe not all of it, but a portion of it, maybe a, a significant portion, is related to some of the self-inflicted things like raising prices several times? That the thing that just irritates me, although I haven't been affected directly by it yet, is the password sharing thing, which I think has been, you know, went down like a lead balloon, frankly. So, you know, do, 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 I guess, do you think that Netflix is, you know, you know, kind of being hoisted by their own petard, as they used to say, you know, regard, regard uh, you know, regard to some of these things they've done in the last few years? Sure. I mean, it's, it's difficult to sort of squeeze in, squeeze out revenue uh, of these systems and, and, uh, you know they haven't experienced the kind of churn that other subscription services do so that's that's on the plus side for them but um you know so i agree with stuart as well about this as kind of a death by a thousand licensing arrangements right as as other people hey, wait a second you're getting all these views using our material and they all started their own services you know with star wars on one and you've you've got you know, the morning show and other things on other services, yeah, it does splinter it off. They're bound to suffer because of that. And right. it's just like what Amazon has discovered. They ain't Hollywood, right? So even though these people would like to be Hollywood, they're not. And and they haven't been able to come up with the kind of quality content and stuff that people want to see. I mean, there are exceptions, obviously, Stranger Things. No, I have not finished the finale. Please don't tell me what goes on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, <laughs> they have stuff like that. But um, when it comes to like having these giant movies and hits that Hollywood typically does, Amazon and Netflix and these people and Apple have failed pretty miserably. So it's it's there's a lot more to it than, you know, it takes a fair amount of talent. So I think there's a limit. Um, no, what I that limit is, I don't know. You know, can they charge a dollar more a month uh, and get away with it. I don't know about that, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. How, we'll see how this pans out because I, I just think now with this whole drama going on with Roku and that'll add another level of um, uh, frivolity <laughs> to, to the, uh, to the dynamic, but uh, we'll see what happens, but uh, we'll kind of see uh, what the, what the marketplace does in terms of um, subscriber defections because they are getting, you know, they're really getting hit quite a bit. Uh, in that area. Let us go to another fun topic. John, I think this is right in your wheelhouse. Um, right. The Amazon situation with Grubhub, they struck a deal with Grubhub. Uh, now it's going to be part of the prime service. <laughs> I wonder if that's going to give Amazon now a reason to increase the, the prime subscription fee. Uh, but that's a different, that's a different topic, but uh, the food business uh, delivery uh, business as a whole has been running into issues um, so maybe, you know, Amazon, obviously, in relation to Grubhub, can provide more value to that and provide it to their, you know, providing it as a free part of the uh, Prime offering, I think, is an interesting deal, you know, in terms of waiving the service charges associated with a food delivery service like Grubhub. But what was your, what's, you know, you're in New York, you, I, do you use Grubhub quite a bit or are you, uh, 
what's your um, what's your take on this news? You know, as a as a Manhattanite, I'm an anti Uber Eats, anti Grubhub, anti every single. We got like a dozen of these <laughs> bicycle delivery services, right? Um, they're all using illegal bikes going too fast, you know, above 28 miles an hour. Don't even get me started. Uh, so, you know, and I can also walk out in Manhattan and get where I want myself within two minutes. So there's no point in, in most of these services. However, they are competing and they're all operating at a loss and they've tried all sorts of things like operating micro hubs and pop up little warehouses and closed storefronts and trying different ways to get these delivery services, the, the financials of them to work. And it, they don't, they quite don't work and none of them are making money. However, this idea with Amazon is a pretty great idea because I might actually use Grubhub now because I am a prime customer. And if they're not going to charge me extra, given the inflation and everything else that's going on, now it seems like a good deal. Suddenly it is. Now they're only taking like a 1% stake in the company. It's tiny, minuscule. But the options are there to ramp that up, obviously. And uh, I think it's an interesting move when you consider, you know, Amazon, Whole Foods. Now you have another delivery service that's on bikes and, and, and right to your door. And it's getting to be very interesting. And I would be curious to see how Uber Eats and some of these hold up, given how expensive expensive incredibly expensive those services are right rob are you a big uh, grubhub guy are you, are, are no, you I, I may not be in new york but i also have access to a lot of really good food like the burrito place is three blocks that way peruvian is two blocks that way really good barbecue place only two blocks that way i've got a lot of a lot of local options and more important, like I, I don't want to use third-party services that are going to take some huge cut out of the local restaurants' pr proceedings. Like two yeah. years ago, I had a DoorDash credit on one of my credit cards, and I thought um, Shake Shack—they can afford it. <laughs> they're they're a large out-of-town company, so right. you know I'm using one large out-of-town company to take a dent out of the business model of another large out-of-town company. But otherwise, you know, I just as soon actually like call up the place or just walk over there. And you know, bring back dinner or whatever it is myself. Story, there's you always cooking. The, you can cook. Too. I love cooking. Yeah, no, give me that special. you actually should try to cook. Uh, but Stuart, you're a fellow New Yorker. Uh, are you uh, an anti? Uh, I am a very heavy Grubhub user because where <laughs> I live in Manhattan, it's almost a food desert for decent food. So there may be one or two places nearby that I could go to and pick up, and I do. But for the most part, anything halfway decent is in Riverdale and 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 Washington Heights, and in where I am in upstate Manhattan. In good restaurants is upstate is, Manhattan. Upstate Manhattan, yeah. yes, I live right <laughs> on the northern tip of the island. Um, yeah. So there's really it's very okay, bucolic up here, and there are not that many food food choices. But this brings up. Um, circling back to the beginning about 4th of July, my wife and I went down to Little Italy for dinner on the 4th of July, um, and we were enjoying a nice cup of gelato at Ferrara's um, towards, you know, yeah, 9, nice. 9 o'clock or so. Yeah. And the place was crawling with bike delivery services, nice. food services, and all of them had bags from multiple services so there was a one guy with doordash grubhub and uh, uber eats you know and yeah. they've got bags on either side and slung over their shoulders 
I always thought, even in the midst of the pandemic, that one reason I think they may be losing money is there are just too many of them. Right. Um, and I mean, it's giving all these these delivery folks. And there was a story in the Times about six or eight months ago talking about what a doggy dog um, uh, businesses is for those bike bikers who are right. fighting to get to restaurants when, you know, they have the, their, their phones and the apps on them and they get alerted that an order is ready to be picked up, come and get it. And there's this battle to, you know, to say, I got it, I got it. And so it's a real, <laughs> real doggy dog world out there and somewhat little dangerous um, as well. So I always thought there was a way too many of them, especially since they're using the same group of drivers. So the economics of this whole thing, as both John and, and Rob have pointed out, has, has been really weird. I mean, um, Grubhub, I think I read in one story, they lost $430 million last year in the heart of the pandemic where people were staying at home and getting their food delivered. And This is like, how do you lose money at a casino? I mean, people are wondering, <laughs> right. if they, how do you not be able to make well, money? If you're Donald that? Trump and you own the casino, then yes, you can do that. <laughs> this is, this is what I was referring to, but again... I think this points to that there are too many of them. And I think the business model is probably flawed. If you can't make money doing this in Manhattan, for right, crying right. out loud, you know, where, you know, you're not going 20 miles to drop off something, you know. So, um, listen, I'm an Amazon Prime member. I'm a Grubhub user. I'm looking forward to taking advantage of this, save one or two dollars on the delivery cost. If I can, that's great. But I think the whole business model of these delivery services, as John, as both Rob and John have pointed out, on the one side, is taking money away from these local businesses, and it's creating traffic havoc, and at least in on Manhattan, in Manhattan, um, where all these bicycles carrying these multiple bags uh, all over the place. Yeah, the, the other, I'll close this topic out with this thought before we get to our last topic, and that is, I live at a place called Santana Row. I'm sure you guys have been there before. It's a fairly upscale place, but it's been around for about 20 years with restaurants on the, on the bottom. And, you know, it's a fairly large complex. And I've always, it always surprises me when I see someone in my building order coffee from the Starbucks across the street. It's, it's literally a 39 second walk. And then, you know, you'll wake up in the morning, the coffee and whatever pastry they've gotten is in a little uh, paper bag with the Starbucks logo on it, and it will be there for about three hours. So the person ordered it and forgot about it. So I just don't get that, you know. Plus the fact that maybe I'm old school. Get off your rear end and walk across the street <laughs> and get it. What if you had the coffee drone delivered to somebody's balcony, though? Hear me, hear me out. That's, that's going to happen. That's going to happen <laughs> along, along with pizza delivery. Let us hit our last topic, and that is. Um, TikTok, once again, is the news. Again, they, they seem to be in the news all the time, but uh, they've been now uh, uh, accused of accessing uh, user data uh, from China. You know, not a new accusation, by the way, uh, on, on TikTok. But uh, Stuart, let me start with you and get your reaction to this latest uh, revelation. Well, I think they've now actually admitted um, that Chinese, the Chinese uh, politicians, the CCP, has been able to access 
data. They now admitted to it, and they're trying to they're scrambling with the the Oracle connection that they have to secure the servers. Which I thought was interesting about this was that Brian Stelter did a big segment on this on reliable sources on CNN on Sunday morning, and he was interviewing somebody, you know, a, a spokesperson from TikTok, and Stelter asked. Um, do the China, does the CCP have access to this data? And the spokesman said, we do not share data with the CCP. And I'm looking at the TV and I'm screaming at Brian to follow up. That wasn't the question. He didn't ask if you were sharing data. He was asking you if they had access to it. And so the shady way in which that answer, that question was answered, that we're not sharing... And, and the fact that a day or two later, they admitted that the CCP and, and other Chinese executives have access to the data, whether or not TikTok was sharing it is a completely separate issue. So I think they admitted it. And I think they're now scrambling to cover all this up before the U.S. government steps in and 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 says you're you're not doing business here anymore. Well, and what's pretty shocking about that, it's been known for years that if you operate as a company in China, Mm -hmm. uh, you, the, by it's not it's not optional. You have to provide the CCP with access to data if they request it. And believe right. it or not, I'm not. I'm sure that the, the the bureaucratic request for data. It's not like in the United States where we have a process for subpoenas and and, and other legal requests like that. The CCP just gets it. <laughs> you know, there's no question that. Yeah. So, Rob, Rob, what's your reaction to this? So, yeah, it's a legit concern. I, I mean, there are not too many issues where you're going to have Senator Marco Rubio, Republican of Florida, and Senator Mark Warner, Democrat of Virginia, agree. But they, they did both, you know, send this letter to the chairwoman of the Federal Trade Commission saying you need to look into this, given that there have been past concerns. This company has said we don't do this, which if you say that to <laughs> the feds, it had better be true or you get in trouble. Right. Um the one thing they didn't mention, but which is also a risk, is that, you know, if the Chinese Communist Party, what if they wanted to get the location data of millions of Americans who had no mm -hmm. idea what was being collected? They could just buy it. All the stupid data brokers that buy yeah. the GPS coordinates collected by ad components on our phones, they can just buy it. They, they don't need to, you know, wait for <laughs> at some point, I guess. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is going to get TikTok on his phone. Probably not. Um, so there are legit concerns about TikTok. Are they being honest? You know, have they actually moved all their U.S. users' data over to this Oracle hosting arrangement? Should we even let a, you know, if, if China is not going to let U.S. social media companies operate there, should we return the favor to companies that are owned by Chinese operations and pretty much under the control of the Chinese Communist Party? Right. But if we're serious about looking at the privacy risks, you've got to look at all this this other giant market. And, you know, there are things everyone listening, watching, all three of you <laughs> remember that in the privacy settings in Android and iOS, you can make sure that any one app, especially if it's an app that's subsidized by advertising and doesn't seem to have an obvious need for your, your exact location, you can make sure it can't get your location in the background. Uh, in the most recent versions of Android and iOS, you can give that app only your approximate location, which is good to a few miles, which for a weather app, that's fine. Uh, you know, for any ad subsidized app, you certainly don't need to have that pinpoint accuracy. Mm -hmm. But most people don't touch the defaults. And right now there's just so little regulation 
what does happen is one data broker gets caught being really sleazy, exposed, maybe apps that included uh, the adware component that the data broker bought this information from get kicked out of the Play Store or the App Store, but there's no systematic regulation of it. And you know, you, you could shoot TikTok into the sun and this problem would still be around. So John, just to sum this all up in a bow, um, I have to guess that you're not a TikTok user. <laughs> Am I wrong? I want to see you dancing, John. Actually, I do use TikTok. I mean, it's part of my job is my excuse, right? Um, I have to. Um, but uh, listen, there are two, two aspects that, that strike me about this. A pot calling the kettle black is one. I mean, in the United States, it's a free-for-all, right? As Rob just pointed out, you can have any data you want on anybody you want whenever you want, and it's all commercially available. And most of it isn't very secure, as we find out. You know, thank you very much, Equifax. Hello. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're worried about that kind of security, the United States is one of the worst places on the planet for that. Um, and it's coming up in other countries. Recently, Ireland said, hey, you can't store data on Europeans in the United States because it's not safe. And it's also going to be used for all sorts of nefarious reasons in the United States. So the EU does not want their data stored in the United States. They treat us like we're China as far as data is concerned. So it, it's an odd thing to to worry about. Um, on the other hand, uh, the Chinese are terrible at security and the government is just as bad. So it's just revealed that literally billions of people's data has been exposed online and hackers have it, including um, the New York Times. One of my fellow, one of my colleagues there uh, called up somebody and said, hey, did you know that data about your daughter being raped by a manager of her company? All that information is being stolen is now online. Things like that, very, very personal things um, have been stolen. So there's definitely a security issue there. TikTok tracking me, nah, not so worried about it uh, when every other app, as Rob just pointed out, is also tracking me. So, you know, if they think they're going to sell something to me from it, ah, whatever. <laughs> Well, I, I think it's shocking, John, that you point out that there's hypocrisy going on <laughs> between certain politicians in Washington and their perceptions of how they want to portray. Uh, uh, right. yeah, there's gambling the going on. I'm shocked. Your yeah. data, sir. You know, but one, one day we need to do a podcast just like Casablanca to show the parallels <laughs> with some of the uh, the uh, some of the topics we uh, we talk about. But guys, listen. Thank you for taking the time to join me for today's podcast. For our viewing and listening audience. Uh, please uh, make sure that you make the Smart Tech uh, Check podcast part of your day or commute. Please make sure that you hit the like and subscribe buttons at the end of today's podcast. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Mark Vina Tech Guy. And until next time, have a great week. And guys, thanks for participating. Thank you. Mm -hmm.